Hello. Hi, everyone. Hi. Um, I was told earlier yesterday that there's a male Sanu that also exists. And so I don't know if you were expecting him, but it's not him. I still haven't actually met him either. But um, so, yeah, my name is so a lot of people know me by Susan, I think. And that can be confusing because I have like three names. Um, so there's Susan. And then there's Sanuja, which is like my home name. Like you all have, well, maybe not all of you, but some of you have a home name. And then I'm known to s most people here as Sanu. So Sanu is fine. Um, it is such a pleasure to be here. And um, I just, can we give a round of applause to the, the worship team and all of you? Uh, I think that that was such a great way to walk into worship and the liturgy and the gospel in our liturgy just because we don't get a lot of time to do what we just heard right and to hear all the voices was just it was very overwhelming it was um, brought tears to my eyes myself so um we're good for seats no one is sitting on that side and everyone's kind of in the middle for the most part so that's really nice to see so I've already given you my name, and that's about all you know about me for some of you. So you're probably wondering what qualifies me to stand up here and to talk about the topic of the gospel in our liturgy. And to be very honest, nothing. Nothing qualifies me to be up here, okay? Um, I did a master, so something else that someone told me today, actually third person told me today, is that I have a Canadian accent. So some of you are nodding your head like you can hear that, but the Canadians are like, no, she doesn't. It's just Canadian. So if I hope it's pretty clear. It's pretty close to the American, I hope. But um, hopefully you'll be able to catch everything I say. So up in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, there's a seminary called Tyndale, and I had the pleasure of going there to do my Master's of Divinity. But I took the clinical counseling route. So I work as a counselor up in Toronto. Um, and I did not do the pastoral route at all. So again, what qualifies me to be up here? Nothing. So I'm really thankful and humbled that I get to speak on this topic. Um, thanks to Brian and the whole team who asked me to do this this year. Um, it's, it really was really great for myself to delve into our liturgy and to just study it for myself, go through it because it had been a few years since I had really done that. Um, the CSI liturgy is... I don't know what expectations you came in with today. I don't know whether when you saw that you're like, oh great, like we're gonna have a third service um, because there's already one on Thursday and then Sunday and then today and I'm gonna go line by line, which I am not. Um, thank you, Chris. Uh, so what I thought would be a better approach is to kind of talk about some of the general themes that we find in our service and we'll go from there. So we'll pick it up and we'll see where it takes us. Um, when I was in seminary, I took a course called Worship and Liturgy. So I don't know whether that's why Brian ended up asking me to do this, because somehow he got wind of that. But um, in seminary, as you can imagine, we take courses in theology. Like I said, I did the clinical route, the clinical counseling route. So I still had to take theology courses, and I had a bunch of electives. There are a few commonalities here. Um, I'm not going to assume, but I'm thinking almost 95% of us here are Malayali fair to say, right? And you're here because you are CSI by some shape or form. Either your parents go to the CSI church and you attend, or you're a regular member yourself and you go on a weekly basis. So I have a very, not a big question, but a question that I want to ask all of you and I want a very honest answer. And this will be like, don't worry, I won't get you to participate a whole bunch. I know you just had dinner, everyone's sleepy. Some of you, I already lost when I said my name was Sanu, so I'm just gonna go with that. Um, I'm gonna ask you a question, and I want you to be very honest. How many of you, how many of us, have found ourselves bored at some point during our CSI liturgy? Like, be honest, guys. Okay. How many of you have felt that like you're losing concentration, it's hard to focus, wondering what the point of having like, I don't know how long your services are, it depends on the, the tail ends of them and how long the action speaks for and all of that. But maybe two hours, maybe pushing two and a half hours. You guys have wondered why it needs to be that long. Okay. So I'm gonna take you back to my first day of, my, one of the first days of um, my days in seminary. 
And I was in a class called Worship and Liturgy, as I said. So I started, when I started my postgrad, I was meeting Christians because it's seminary, right? Like, I'm forgetting it's not like a secular university, but it was seminary. I am meeting Christians from denominations that I didn't even know existed, okay? Like, they, I, as, as common as asking, hey, what's your name, as you would maybe, or what program are you in? It was, what church do you go to? And so as many of you have probably experienced, not many people have heard of CSI, um, depending on where you live in the country. So with the exception of one guy that I met who happened to be in, who lived in Chennai himself, um, no one had heard of the CSI church, or the Church of South India, and they didn't know what it was. I was at a point in my walk with God at that point in time. Okay, I should check. Does, can everyone hear me everywhere? Yeah, we're good. Okay. I was at a point um, in my walk with God where I didn't even know why I was going to church. Uh, given what our church was going through at that time several years ago, I was literally had one foot out the door. Okay, So I would attend another church closer to my home um, up in Toronto in the morning and then come to the CSI church for service. My family was all going there. And the CSI service, the CSI family, was familiar and friendly and safe in a lot of ways. But it was also very foreign, it felt like. I'm like this Canadian growing up in an Indian family, attending the CSI church, Malayalam service. We can read and write it. We had Malayalam class, but not really feeling God during the service. Do you guys kind of understand what I mean by that? Felt kind of detached from it and felt that the service itself was so rigid and routine and predictable. How do you worship God with such a rigid, routine kind of service? So I attended, so when people ask me, what church do you go to in seminary? I would say, I go to the CSI church, but I also go to People's Church. And People's Church is a well-known one up in Toronto. So, of course, though, people were curious around the CSI church. What is that? Where, where are you, like, is it all, like, your people? Or, like, what does that look like? So here I am, one foot out the door of my church, uh, still actively participating. I was still in everything, but still like just really struggling in my faith at that point in time. And so here I am, one foot out the door, taking worship and liturgy. God works in funny ways. So I don't know about you guys, but first day of school for me, first day of school for me, you know when your teacher or your professor, if your class is small enough, does that like, okay, we're going to go around and introduce our names and what program we're in or whatever it is. So I'm an introvert by nature. I despise that. I can't, I don't like it. And I'm like, if you already know my name, I don't know why I have to introduce myself. And then you have the professors who are like, and then say something interesting about yourself. And here I'm thinking like, I can't think of anything interesting about myself other than the fact that I can't think of anything interesting. And that's not gonna cut it. But that's what, of course, this class, same thing. We're gonna go around and we're gonna, because it's worship and liturgy, we're gonna say our names. And then we're going to say what church you go to, as well as what your church's liturgy looks like. Great. So already I dread this. And now I have to share what the CSI church is, how we only really have one demographic, mainly Malayali. And then I have to explain what Malayali is, because people don't know what that is either. So I'm doing this in front of a class of mainly pastors, because they're all doing their Master of Divinity in pastoral. Um, and then I've got, you've got students who are still like new, some are just, just graduated and they are starting their masters. And then I have like a 50 year old European professor. So it's my turn and I'd rather run out the room, but that's not an option, so I start. Hi, my name is Susan and I go to slash belong to a denomination called the CSI Church, which stands for the Church of South India. And I've kind of gone there my whole life uh, we're a combination of a bunch of different denominations. And then before I could finish, to my amazement, my professor cut me off and he jumps right in. And he goes, wow, Susan, you're from the Church of South India? Turns to the class. Class, did you know that this is Susan from the Church of South India? And he just keeps going. He's like, it's amazing. I'm going to read this right off my paper because these were his words and I had journaled about it at the time. Um, where am I? He goes, 
He asked the class, have you heard of the CSI Church? It's amazing. It's an amalgamation of the Methodist, Congregational, Anglican, and Presbyterian churches. Right, Susan? And I can't even remember if I nodded or not. And then he turns to me and goes, oh my, you guys have the most beautiful liturgy, and I know liturgies. And then he goes, one of your first bishops, Leslie Newbegin, is one of my greatest mentors. Wow, that's amazing, Susan. I've never had a member of the CSI Church in one of my classes. I am very much looking forward to learn more about the CSI liturgy through you. What an incredibly rich liturgy you have. So if any of you are shocked at that point, I sure was, because no one had ever heard of it so far. And without a doubt, I knew that God had a plan. God had a plan for me being there because, as I told you, I was already on the fence about whether or not I even wanted to stay in the church. So God had a plan. I had no doubt about that. The only question that was left for me, in my mind, was why was I so ashamed of this rich liturgy and the church that I belonged to? In that class, through assignments, reflections, we had to write our liturgy, so rewrite, like pick a, pick a Sunday, like Easter Sunday, Christmas, whatever it was, rewrite your liturgy in today's language and explain to the professor why your church does what it does. So that was one of our assignments. But through a lot of that and reflection and prayer and time in the Word of God, I learned a few lessons that I would like to share with all of you today. And I hope that it will prompt us to look at our CSI liturgy and the value that it actually does have whether or not you choose to stay in the CSI Church is a call that you're going to make in your own wisdom with God's help, right? But I'm hoping to just share a few things that I have learned. Um, I do not expect to transform lives here today. I don't expect to make a big difference or break through your idea of this already boring liturgy. I don't have the power to do that, but the Holy Spirit does. So I'm going to ask that we all close our eyes and look to God in prayer for a moment. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this conference, Lord. We thank you so much for the speakers, the leaders, the people who have been powering through in order to make this possible, and we thank you so much for your grace. Father, as we delve into your word, as we delve into the liturgy that you have blessed us with and that you have made us a part of by the families we've been born into and the choices that they have made, pray that you would speak to us, Lord, that we would take away something from this today and that it would honor and glorify your name. Be with me and just Help our hearts to be opened to hear what it is that you have to say to us today. All this we ask in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so what is a liturgy? That's a, that's a big question, I think. What is a liturgy? And maybe we should back up even further. Why does the church even gather at all? So why are we even here today as a church? And like Lennis has done a great job of calling us church since yesterday, right? He's been telling us to respond and worship that way. So why does the church even gather? And Chris, I'm going to get you to go to the next slide, please. And if you have your Bibles or your phones, if you could just go to Psalm 95 with me. I'm not going to read the whole Psalm, but I do want us to look specifically at verses 6 and 7. And it's also on the screen for you. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. So the gathered church comes together to worship. What or who we worship is something that shapes us, and the word of God tells us what worship is supposed to look like. We have these examples right from Genesis through to Revelation, we have these examples of what worship ought to look like. The way that we worship, the way that we pray, the practices that we do together, these are the things that shape our faith. And the early church fathers believed this. They believed this right from the get-go. It's why we have the liturgy that we have. They believed that even the order in which we pray shapes us. So today, just now, we heard of Acts, right? Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. So the early church fathers would have said that even the order in which you pray shapes the way that you believe, shapes your faith. Practices and habits shape us. 
We tend to think sometimes, though, that we as human beings are mainly cerebral. We're all about the cognitive. It's what we think. It's mind over matter, all of these things, right? That's what we learn in our school sometimes, and that's what the world at large tells us. Human beings are all cognitive. We're cerebral. We have emotions too, but it's not about that. It's about what you think. But we learn, and you guys can all attest to this, we learn by repeatedly doing something, by doing something over and over again. How many of you drive a car or have driven? So it doesn't have to be your car, but you drive. Okay. So when you started learning driving, you had to be taught how to turn the key in the ignition, maybe. Put your foot on the brake. I do drive. If I get this wrong, it's because I'm saying it and I never really had to. You put your foot on the brake and then you move the gear, this and that. You know what you have to do, but it's all an order. It's a habit, right? Turn the key, put the brake. Maybe you're saying that to yourself as you learn. But now, if you've been driving for several months, a year, more than that, several years, you're not thinking about that when you do it anymore. You just get in your car and you're off. And if someone asks you, like you're, like now, if I have to break down the steps, I have to think about it. Because we're so used to it. We learn by practice, by doing things over and over and over again. Liturgy is communal rituals. So things that we do together, it's done by a group of people together. Okay, Liturgy is done by a group of people together. I don't know about your family, but my family often says or thinks that our church has a liturgy unlike this church or that church that has all praise and worship and then a sermon. Okay, so I don't know how many of you have heard that. But let's just clarify that for a minute. That is their liturgy. Their order of worship is their liturgy. Okay, the fact that they do praise and worship first and then they have a sermon and then they have offerings, maybe, maybe communion, that is their liturgy. Liturgy doesn't have to be written down. It doesn't have to be a certain number of pages or a certain number of, a certain length of time either. That was a mosquito, not that I'm, okay, just mosquito. Liturgy itself is designed to aim our love at something, to aim our love at something, okay? A way that we do things is a liturgy, and liturgies form people. Liturgies form people. We have cultural liturgies. Okay? It's how we behave. It's the role that we take when we are doing certain things, when we are participating in certain cultural liturgies. So some examples. How many of you like sports? When you go, let's say you go for a game, you might dress a certain way. You might have the jersey of the team that you're cheering for. You might behave differently. You might behave differently based on the friends that you go with or the people that you go with, right? And so at these games, what are you? You are a spectator. What about if you're going to a concert? You might dress differently based on the concert you're going to. If you're going to a rock concert, you might dress differently than if you're going to a praise and worship concert or an opera, again, the attire that you wear, the behavior that you carry yourself with, the gathering of people, your love is focused at something, and you're a fan, right? When you go to for a concert, you're a fan. You're joining everybody else, and you're a fan. And when you're going for a game, you are a spectator. What about when you go for the shop, go shopping? You go to the shopping mall. Okay, so we, everyone who goes to a shopping mall generally has a common goal is to buy something. And you have a routine maybe when you go to the shopping mall. You have a certain place that you tend to park, certain area that you tend to park. Maybe you grab a drink and then you walk through the stores and then you go straight to the stores that you know have your style and your size. And you tend to just hit up those stores. So you're a consumer. Those are our cultural liturgies. Not all of them. It's not... Um, extensive by any means, but these three things, spectators, fans, consumers, that's the world that we live in. And that's a snapshot of our cultural liturgies in North America. What makes us relevant is our cultural liturgies. The danger becomes when we take that thinking and we bring it into the church or how we approach church today. We have never been called by Jesus to be his fans or to be spectators or to be shoppers or consumers. We are guilty in North America and the world today 
the entire world around us, of mixing up the message with a capital M and the methods that we use. Churches have taken on this identity all over the place of creating spectators and fans and consumers of Jesus, all in the interest of being relevant. I don't think that it's coming from a negative place. It's all in the interest of becoming relevant, relevant to the young crowd, relevant to the senior citizens who want shorter services, relevant to the adults who have other responsibilities and might want to do their groceries so service might be later or earlier in the morning and short and sweet. But being relevant is not, and this is totally a quote that I'm taking from somewhere, but being relevant is not about knowing more about the Grammys than it is about our church fathers or letting on that that's how you remain relevant. We are then just forming people the wrong way. Like I said, liturgies form people, and if that's our approach, we are forming people the wrong way. So what's the message for us as Christians? What is the gospel for us, and has it changed over the years? What do you guys think? It's never changed, but maybe our methods have. The message itself, the gospel itself has never changed, but maybe our methods have. So let's just go back to the basics. And Chris, I'm going to get you to pull up the next slide and just stop at the first point, please. Thank you. So we've been talking about the gospel all weekend, right? Or, I mean, it's been two days, but we're going to be talking about the gospel all weekend and the gospel in everything. So today we're going to go back to the basics of what is the gospel. And I'm sure you're going to hear this in different ways and different forms. I just got it down in four points. And we're going to go through each one of them really quickly. And we're going to use that to base the rest of our, um, our talk today. So the gospel in a nutshell, the first thing is God's love. There are four things that you'll need to remember. If ever you need to explain to someone what the gospel is, there are four things that you need to remember. The first one is God's love. God loves you and he created you to create him, to know you personally. Created you to know you personally. And he offers a wonderful plan for your life. Number two is our condition, okay? People are sinful and we are separated from God. And because of our condition, we cannot know him personally and we cannot experience the plan that he has for our life, okay? The third thing is God's response to that. God's response is that he sent his son Jesus as the only provision for our sins, for our condition. And through him, we can know God personally and experience his plan for our life. And the final part of all of this is our response. We must all individually receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior, and then we can know God personally and experience his plan for our life. So though that is the gospel in a nutshell. That's the gospel. God's love for us, our condition, God's response, our response. If you can memorize that and take that away with you, you'll at least know mentally, you'll know in head knowledge what the gospel is from Genesis right through to Revelation. I cannot take credit for that, but that is something that I have found helpful over the years. That's the gospel. So is this gospel, is that gospel, is that the only gospel, is that still relevant to us today? What do you guys think? Absolutely. But is the gospel found in our CSI liturgy? That's the question that we're going to address so what does the gospel look like when people gather? And what should it look like? So the next part of this is going to be, so we're going to go to the next slide, Chris. And you can just go through, yeah, right, the whole slide. Thank you. When people, when the people of God gather, it is three things. It needs to be three things, okay? It needs to be Christ-centered, unapologetically Christ-centered. It needs to be gospel-shaped and it needs to be spirit-led, okay? Christ-centered, gospel-shaped, spirit-led. These three points I got actually from a YouTube clip of an of a entire talk on liturgy that Brian had sent to me, and that is what I'm sharing with you today, okay? So these are the three points that he talks about, and we're going to stray away from what he has said. We're not sticking to the entire clip, but these are his three points, and we're going to see whether that applies to us as a CSI liturgy. 
So the first one, so next slide, Chris, thank you. Christ-centered, okay, unapologetically Christ-centered. We might think, obviously, like if we're going to gather, we're going to pray, we're going to sing songs, obviously it has to be Christ-centered. Obviously it will be Christ-centered, right? But for those of you who have gone to other churches, those of you who have church shopped, let's say, there is this notion that the form doesn't matter. It's the message that matters. Right? It doesn't matter how you give the message to people. It's the message itself that matters. And I heard two great examples about this. So if form doesn't matter and it's just about the message, for those of you who are married, try sticking a post-it note that says, I love you on your first anniversary somewhere in the house and see how your spouse might respond to that. Or for those of you who have siblings, try texting them, happy birthday. And then when you see them for dinner that evening, forget to wish them. But you, you already texted them. It doesn't matter. It's the message, right? It's not the form. The form doesn't matter. It's the message. The form needs to reinforce the message. Whatever the message is, the form needs to reinforce the message. The visual and the form need to reinforce one another. They need to support one another and work together. When you enter a CSI worship service, which you all have in your home churches, what's the first thing that you see when you enter those doors? Cross. What else might you see? The altar table. Okay. The cross, the altar table. Those are the two things that you might see. The altar table is an invitation. As soon as you come in, that's usually the first thing you see, unless you have a cross somewhere in your church um, that is, you know, like the first thing that you might see. When I enter our service, I usually see the altar table first. It's an invitation for everyone to come. And not all churches have that. Not all churches will have an altar table. They will have a stage. They will have a platform but they may not have an altar table. Also turns into the same thing as the communion table, right? So this invitation to come. So that's the first one. The second one is the cross, and it's not just any cross. It's an empty cross. It's an empty cross. And as Protestants, that is what defines us. Okay, As Protestants, the cross that is empty is the one that we believe on and the one that we can place our hope in. We begin and end the service with an empty cross. How many of your churches have a church choir? Almost, every, I think everybody, almost everyone. I think so. That's probably very significant in your, in your church, so I'm going to guess that everybody has a choir for most Sundays. And you all process. And what is the first thing that goes in the procession? The cross. And what is the first thing that goes for the recession to the back? The cross. And so, in our church, and I don't know whether this is a shift that's just happening, but we had an ushin, um, our last ushin, insisted, and this was part of their, their belief, I like very strong theology, it was the cross and then the Bible bearer. So I don't know for how many of you the Bible bearer is at the end, at the very end of, um, like after the, the choir, after, after everybody is the um, Bible bearer. For us, it's right after the cross, and our Achen insisted on that, and now it is just a part of our worship. Because his, his theology that he taught us was the cross comes in, the empty cross, but the Bible is the word of God, and the word became flesh, which means the word is Jesus. Jesus is the word, right? We read that in John 1. So it's the cross, the Bible, and then whoever else wants to come behind that, choir and Achen and everyone else comes after that. But cross and Bible, and they are all walking towards the altar table. We begin and end the service with a procession and a recession, empty cross. And the reason that we do that is because Jesus conquered death. He's not still on the cross. Okay? He's not there anymore. He's not there. He's not in the tomb because he conquered death. He rose from the dead, and the cross now stands empty. The other reason why we do not have a curtain, and you can see the altar table when you come in, 
is because the veil was torn on the hill of Calvary. And the CSI liturgy has understood that. The people who wrote this knew that. Okay, there's a reason we are an amalgamated church of four different congregations because, and the reason it probably took several years for them to form this, because they gave it so much thought and prayer that there's very little that I can dispute about some of these things. Okay? There's no longer a veil. So when Achen has the altar table, when it's communion time, and he is pouring the wine and breaking the bread, can we see it? We can see it because we are allowed to see it because now the veil is torn and we have complete access to God. Complete access to God. Communion is a huge part of our service. It's the entire second half of our service, right, in CSI liturgy. And even for that, all are welcome because of the finished work that Jesus has done on the cross, and we bear witness to it. This is not the case for all churches whether Malayali or otherwise. This is not the case for all churches. You cannot always go and receive communion and be welcomed to the table. With CSI liturgy, like I said, they have thought through every single one of these things, but we don't look for it. As kids growing up in this church, we do not look for these things, which is why I loved prepping for this, because it helped me to delve in and look at the things that I don't usually appreciate about our service and that I, I really should be, okay? The form in our service reinforces the message of Christ in our CSI liturgy. Everything that is said, sung, read, or prayed points us to the gospel. God's love, you guys remember it? God's love, our condition, God's response, and our response, okay? Every single thing points us to the gospel narrative, and it points us to Jesus. Uh, one last thing I will say on that before I move to the next point is sometimes, so I love, yesterday's worship service was so, it was so cool to see some of the contemporary music being incorporated in, right? Um, so I don't know how many of your churches do praise and worship on a weekly basis, or if it's a real fight right now to, to get that done and to have that time, but Come what may, I know like the hymns can sometimes be like, really, like you're just singing these hymns, they're so old, these people don't even exist anymore. What's the big idea? But those hymns, and now you've got artists like Chris Tomlin and like Matt Marr, like they're all coming out with ways of reinventing those hymns, right? Like Amazing Grace, the tune we sang was the one that we hear, um, my chains are gone, right? Um, those hymns though are hymns of faith. There's a reason why the book is sometimes called sing his praise or hymns of faith, whatever it is, because they are so solid in their theology. They may not be, you know, up-to-date English and like all these things, but they are so solid in their theology. One thing that we will get to it is that for the people who wrote those hymns, God was not a feeling, okay? God was not a feeling. He was a known fact. He was there through thick and thin, whether or not we felt him, God was there, he was not a feeling. So I just wanted to say that about the hymns and why we're still using them. I don't know if that'll change how you see the hymns, because I know some of the tunes maybe are not, you know, filling your fancy, but that's just for you to know that there is a reason why, there is a reason why every single thing in our service is done. Okay. We're going to move on to the next point, which is gospel shaped. So we had Christ, Christ-centered worship, and now we have gospel shaped. What does that mean? So we're going to go back to the gospel in a nutshell. I'm going to get that up there. Yes. Yes. Which you guys have all memorized now, right? So we've got God's... Okay, wait, take that off, right, Chris, for a sec? Thanks. So we've got... Awesome. Okay, now you've put it up. Thank you. Great job, guys. Okay. We're going to spend a little more time here. I'm keeping an eye on the time as well. Don't worry. Um, we are going to spend a little more time here because this is the reason why we are meeting. So much of this weekend has been and will be about the gospel in everything, right? In the CSI liturgy as well. And so um, someone mentioned this in one of the discussions earlier today, but we tend to think that the gospel is in the New Testament. It's in the, the four first books of that Bible, right? It's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, or just knowing the story of Jesus, knowing how loving he was, how great with children he was, so compassionate. 
forgetting that he came down to us as God's response to our condition of sin. Okay? Our condition of sin is not told to us, or we don't know the whole story if we just read it from the New Testament. That starts right back in Genesis. So for worship to be gospel-shaped, it needs to tell the story of the gospel, right? And that starts back at the fall in Genesis. Also moves to God's commandments that he gave to Moses. And then it finally ends with the story of Jesus where he says, go out into the world and make disciples. Go to the ends of the earth. God's love is seen in the creation story. We already know that. But it's also seen in the law, the Ten Commandments. And so I'm going to read a quote that I read this week in one of my devotions. It says, Law doesn't create a sense of frustration and failure to leave us there. What it does is it makes us aware that we are incapable of meeting the demands of the law. So we are driven to Christ, the only one who fulfills in us what the law demands. So God loves, God loves so much that he gives us law so that we can live blameless lives. Our condition is that we are sinful. God responds by sending Jesus. So that's the Christ-centered worship that we talked about. So what's our response? What does God require that is built right into our worship service for us as our response? Confession. And I think you'll all recognize this when I say, you that do truly and earnestly repent you of your sins, dot, 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 make your humble confession to the Almighty God. Confession is our response, and that's the complete story of the gospel. 360. Part of responding to the invitation of God is to recognize that we are unworthy to do that. We are unworthy to respond to his love. We don't deserve it. The gospel, if it's understood in its entirety, brings us, should bring us to our knees for the grace that we experience through God. Our condition of our unworthiness, our sin, our dirt, our shame, our doubt, everything that we bring, our inherent nature itself, something that we cannot get rid of, God still says, come. So we're going to move to the next slide, Chris. Where do we learn about our awareness of sin? Where do we learn that we are sinful people? Back in Genesis, right? And this was an article um, that was shared on Facebook. And um, we're going to get all five points up there. I'm not going to go through each one of these. I just want you to see this. This was an article written by Pastor Paul Carter. And he writes, why I won't be unhitching from the Old Testament anytime soon. One, it tells me the truth about God. Secondly, it tells me the truth about me. Thirdly, it makes me wise unto salvation. Number four, it helps me to keep my way pure. And five, it gives me knowledge and understanding. I'm not going to have time to go through each one of those points, but I think some of you might glean from it what you will. All of that is found in the Old Testament. And it makes us so aware of the fact that we are not worthy to come to the table. We are not worthy to stand on the same ground that God stands on. We are not worthy of any of this. A biblical pattern that still marks Christian worship today and should is acknowledging that the presence of God creates holy ground and that it is set apart for worship. And that is something that our 21st century has really tried to get rid of or lose. How many of us take our shoes off when we come for communion? You don't have to answer. How many of us dress differently when we're coming into the presence of God? And so this is where the confusion comes in, right? Because God's with us all the time. So why do we have to gather to worship? Which is what we're talking about today. But the Old Testament, the Old Covenant has taught us that. God has made it abundantly clear that he is worthy of all the praise and of the glory, and we are not. But by his grace, we can still come. So how seriously do we take that? And I'll just roll out of bed. I just came home late from party. I'm going to just go to church. 
But the night before, when you went out to a friend's house, how did you dress? How long did you take to get ready? And how are we preparing ourselves for worship? I'm just going to roll out of bed and like maybe put my hair up and see if that works and then just go. Or are we spending time? And we are all guilty of this, myself included, okay? Like I said, I shouldn't even be standing up here. I am guilty of this as well in the sense of like how long do we take to prepare for worship? Do we spend time in the word? Do we spend time truly getting ready to enter into this singing along with everyone, joining with the archangels, coming before the table, receiving the Holy Communion? Or it's just one of those things that we do. And that is why confession is so crucial. And many churches don't have that today. Many churches do not have a joint confession that everybody will join in. Some might, but I've been to many churches, partly for this course that I was taking. We had to go visit a number of churches, and a lot of them do not have a joint confession. But confession is our way of saying, Jesus, I don't have this. I don't have control. I don't have this. Things are going wrong in my life. I don't know what's going on. I planned for this. This is not happening. I'm feeling down. I'm struggling with this. I lost a loved one. Jesus, I do not have this. And Jesus responding to us, I got you. I got you, my child. We are coming before a holy God and we bring nothing. So different from the world that we live in. Where when you go for a job interview, you have your resume, you've got all your skills, you're presenting yourself. This is who I am and this is what I can do. And God says, no, I don't want any of that. Because you can't bring anything. It's already done. It was done on the cross. You can bring nothing to please me except your worship and your praise and your heart. In the past, the center of peace was the communion table. It was known as the center of peace. And we have confession before communion. Why? That's the second time now. It's like if I did the service again today, it would have been like three times. It's like like overkill, right? Like why do we have confession before communion? Communion is like, we have like two services in one. That's why the service is so long, FYI, because we have the breaking of the word and the breaking of the bread. Those are the two parts of our service. And so for the breaking of the word, we have our confession. And then for the breaking of the word, breaking of the bread, we have our second confession. Like I said, when we come to the table, we don't bring anything. It's not a potluck. We come empty-handed, and we allow Jesus to remind us that he is everything. And throughout the service, we are reminded of, and Chris, I'm going to get you to pull up the entire next slide, please. God's love, our condition, God's response, our response. And I have up there beside it the verses that correspond with each of these, this gospel in a nutshell, okay? So these are all found, surprise, surprise, in our CSI liturgy. God's love, John 3, 16, our pastors will say this, God so loved the world, we know this, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Secondly, our condition is our confession. We have sinned against you and our neighbor. Does that sound familiar? Third, God's response. We find that in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, and John chapter 2, verse 1. And our pastors also read this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. If any man sin, we have an advocate with Jesus Christ the Father. And fourthly, our response is the confession time. And when we proclaim our faith in the Nicene Creed, we do not presume to come to this thy table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your manifold and great mercies, we're not worthy. We're not worthy to gather up the crumbs under thy table. And then we have a chance to confess by saying the Nicene Creed, our faith, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty. So we come, empty hands, to a feast that Jesus is. Again, the form reinforces the message in our CSI liturgy. Now it's all about Jesus. It's his story, what Jesus has done, and that is everything. The gospel is everything. There's a song that I don't know if the worship team is going to be able to do it um, today, and that's totally fine if they don't, but there's a song with the lyrics 
that I heard a few months ago, and it's, the lyrics are, God, you don't need me, but somehow you want me. Right? God, you don't need me. He doesn't need us. He does not need us. He will be perfectly fine without us, but he wants us. And that is gospel-shaped worship. And we're going to move on to our final point here about spirit-led worship. Can you go to the next slide? Thank you. I have struggled with what the word worship means. What does it mean? Are there different levels of worship? Is some worship better than other worship? How do you rate this? How do you evaluate that? One thing that we have, I'm sure we will all agree, is that we enjoy worship our way. Wow, W-O-W, worship our way. When we, like, why do we join? Why do we join with a community? Why do we join with other believers? Why is that so important to God? In the 21st century, this idea of the Holy Spirit being very spontaneous has developed. I don't even know if it's the 21st century alone. It's probably 20, 21st century. Maybe started in 19th century with a lot of the movements that happened at that time. But we have this idea. How many of you think that? The Holy Spirit is pretty spontaneous. Nobody? Just me? Because I sure do. I, and I grew up with that idea that the Holy Spirit is spontaneous. Okay. I had a professor that said, and if we can get that quote up there, Scripture is, does not operate on spontaneity but on perseverance. Scripture does not operate on spontaneity, but on perseverance. The first story that I think of, which we, which is so apt that we did that today, um, was, so the first story that I think of when we think of the Holy Spirit is Pentecost, right? Like, that's the obvious story that comes to mind. When, in fact, the Spirit was actually present right from Genesis. The Spirit is present right from Genesis, and he is made mention of in different places in the Old Testament. But Jesus says in the New Testament, I will leave you with another comforter. And then the next thing we see is the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. But that experience, and we learned a little bit about that this morning, thanks to Benoit, but that experience, that happening of Pentecost was not out of the blue. It was not random. It was not spontaneous. So if you can turn to me, Turn with me to Acts chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And I'm just going to read that. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. They had gathered as a church. These people had gathered together like you are all here today as a church, as a community to worship. And God knew that. God knew that. God does not have plan Bs. We might think that he does, but he does not have any plan Bs. God knew that, and he planned to pour out his spirit. The spirit is not always spontaneous. In fact, the spirit usually comes right on time. But maybe we want it to be more spontaneous. And here is where I 100% agree that the CSI liturgy sometimes fails in this area. We don't always leave enough room for the Spirit to move. There are spots in our liturgy where we should be seeing it. Um, yesterday's worship service, I was really thankful to see that as well, that the Etchens paused after and in between the intercessory um, prayers or the girl who was leading it paused in between and we had time to respond. But there were spaces left in the service before confession where you could say your own prayer to God or allow him to speak to you. There were those gaps. And I don't know where our minds go sometimes in those gaps. But that is what those spaces are for. And if your Ajahn is not leaving those spaces in between intercessory prayer, in between each and every bidding, talk to him about it. I know that's a tall order, but there is a reason why those gaps are built into our intercessory prayer in before our confession. Um, I'm trying to think off the top of my head where else, but there are times in the service where a silence is to be kept. And it says that in our liturgy, silence to be kept. And sometimes we just keep reading. 
But there's a reason for those silences. It is leaving room for the Spirit to guide us, for the Spirit to speak to us. When we leave room for the Spirit to pray, when we pray to leave room for the Spirit, it changes things. How many of us ask the Spirit to inform how we will pray for our city, for our community, for our churches? That's another thing, again, we lack in this area. How many of us have intercessory prayers on a Sunday, regular worship service, that prays for more than just the litany that's typed up there, or the needs of every single member of the congregation? What about the world out there? What about the community that we live in? What about the wars that are happening, the children that are orphaned? What about the situations, the shootings that are happening week by week, the stabbings, the victims of those things? Our liturgy is not perfect, okay? But we're off to a pretty good start. How can we give the Spirit a bigger role in our worship? Something else that I'm just going to touch on because Lennis had spoken about this and this really spoke to, spoke to me as well, just the postures. Even that is inviting the Spirit in. Not just during praise and worship, but when you kneel. Kneeling just to kneel. Nobody likes to kneel, okay? It's not comfortable unless you're five years old. It's not comfortable to kneel. But there's a reason why we do it. Jesus knelt and prayed, and he was 33 when we have record of this. So we really have no excuse. The reason that it says, please sit or kneel, for those of us who are able to kneel, we should be. Because we are not worthy. And this comes right back to the whole idea of standing on holy ground. Our posture is an outward reflection of what's going on inside. As I conclude, Maybe a question that's still in your mind is, can't any time or space or anything or anyone be set apart for worship? Because God's with us always, right? We have Emmanuel, God with us. We hear that in the Christmas story. So why do we have to gather in one place? Worship that means anything that anyone does, when that happens, it tends to mean very little to God. When worship our way, takes precedence over what worship is in God's eyes and God's word, it tends to mean very little to God and in terms of what pleases him as well. The God of scripture has a lot to say about sacred space and time and what's holy and acceptable to him. Maybe we think that the Bible is dated. Maybe we think that the CSI liturgy is dated. I will agree those and these are like like it's not the English we use right it's not the English that we use today so let's change it let's talk to the leaders in our churches and ask for updated versions we have a couple in our church but they're not edited very well so we need to be pushing for that a little bit more but it's very easy for us to stand back here and oh the like who even uses that anymore that's so old school yeah it is and you know what when they wrote it that was the English that they used and if that's the kind of liturgy that we've had for this, num- this many number of years, they're expecting that the next generation is going to change it. The church fathers didn't say, this is set in stone for life. You cannot change a thee to you. So are we having those conversations? Are we even thinking about having those conversations? Or would we rather complain about the fact that it's really dated or it's really old? Maybe we think it's so different now. It's so different now. We have so much more technology. Look, I'm using PowerPoint. Like, that wouldn't have been there, you know, a few years ago. Like, improved technology. We've got tablets. Better than what Moses had. It works so much better today. That's what we believe. The Bible is not relevant. We may as well just pack up our bags and go home. As I said, the way that we worship, the way that we pray, the practices that we do together are what shapes our faith. One thing that has not changed in biblical patterns of worship is that worshipers respond to the invitation of God to come. Worshipers are to respond to God's invitation 
to come. The problem is that intimacy with God, we come with this presumption that God will accept anything that's even sincerely or remotely motivated to worshiping him. And then we become a spectator or a fan or a consumer. Christ-centered, gospel-shaped, spirit-led. Our CSI liturgy is rooted, rooted, okay, in biblical truths, in theology that is so strong, I can't even put it into words. I've been trying for like the last few weeks to put this into words. It beautifully incorporates the Old Testament and the New Testament, leaving sacred spaces for us to speak and listen to God and for God to speak and listen to us. And we're going to just move to the last slide here. And I'm going to get you to just pull it all up right to the end. Don't worry, I'm not going to go through all of this. We're almost done. Don't worry. This is our order of worship right there. That's our order of worship, beginning to end. We open with worship, adoration. We have a confession. We are assured of our salvation. Proclaim the word through readings and the sermon. The word of God is preached. We have intercession. We intercede. We give our offerings. We confess our faith. We offer our thanksgiving, and then we come to the table. So this side is more the, um, after this is the breaking of the word, breaking of the bread, the two sides, okay? Come to the table, share in communion, and then we are sent out with a blessing of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I will challenge you on this last one. Sent out with the blessing of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The next time your action gives a benediction, that you would open your hands, both hands, and receive it. Posture. I am guilty of this up until I learned about this when I was in seminary, that benediction comes, hymn books are closed, you're just standing there waiting for the prayer to be over, and then you can just all walk back to your seats, change out of your choir robes if you're in the choir, or just leave. We're done. We're checked out. Receive that last blessing with both hands open. And I hope that you'll do that. God is not a feeling. And we are not spectators. We are not fans and we are not consumers. We are participants in the worship. Beginning to end, we are participants in the worship. We are called to be that. Not called to be spectators or fans or consumers. Jesus doesn't need any of that. He doesn't need any of our praise. He wants us to join with him. And so I would encourage you all to look for God's voice in your respective services. Every Achin, every congregation, even though we're all CSI, we do it differently. It looks different in different churches. But look for ways to incorporate things into worship and talk to the leaders of your churches if you care. Okay, if this matters to you at all, if you want to feel like, you know what, I have a voice in this. And there are things, like I said, liturgy is not perfect. It is not. But it, we're off to a pretty good start. It's solid in its theology. Have those conversations. And I pray that you would grow to love worshiping God through our CSI liturgy and immerse yourself in that. I hope that this was helpful in some way, shape, or form, that you're able to see that, you know what, maybe the service is long, maybe the hymns are dated, maybe the language is old, maybe there's a lot of things that happen, but the things that I really want you to remember is that we have full access to God in our services. There is no curtain. We can see the body and blood of the Lord right in front of us. We have full and complete access to him. The cross, the communion table, the invitation to come, the sending out with the blessing, and the verses rooted from right out of the Bible, right out of the Bible, the verses that are prayed and spoken over us, the confession time that we have. These are things that are being lost in today's worship. These are things that are being lost in today's churches. And so I hope 
that you will appreciate the richness of the theology that we have. Because at the end of the day, if you want things to be contemporary, this is it. This is it. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father God, we stand in awe of who you are. We stand in awe of the fact that you love us so much in spite of the fact that our condition does not allow us to come near to you. We thank you that you responded to that and that you have given us a chance to respond back. We pray, Father, that your spirit would go with us, that your son would be the one that we follow, Lord, and that we would look to you constantly. Thank you for everyone who has gathered here. I pray that you would bless them, Father, that you would give us wisdom for each moment, knowledge and understanding that can only come from you. Help us to see with your eyes, to hear with your ears, and to accept with the heart that you have given us, Lord. Soften our hearts. Continue to be with us as we continue on into our sessions and different parts of the day today and tomorrow. Bless us. Keep us safe. We love you. We give you all honor and glory. And we ask all this in Jesus' precious name.